what we see is that it's, you know, they're getting workers into much higher wage employers and occupations and into jobs where there's growth so that these things don't erode away over time. Hi, Ioana. Hey, Kat. So um, I'm excited because this episode, you're interviewing your colleague, Larry Katz, who has studied programs that train and connect unemployed or underemployed people with high wage jobs. And this is actually um, related to our very first episode, Inequality, Job Loss and Unemployment Insurance during COVID-19, um, when you interviewed Eliza Forsyth, because there we discussed how low wage workers across all sectors lost their jobs due to COVID. So you know, what, what Larry finds about sectoral training programs um, is relevant to that same situation. Um, tell us a little bit about Larry and also what these sectoral training programs are that he studied. So Larry, you know, I've known him for a long time. He's an economics professor at Harvard University and really he's an expert on all things about the labor market. He was a chief economist with the U.S. Department of Labor in 1993-1994, so he has experience on the ground. We'll hear in the interview some of that experience that comes through in his description of the policy. And Larry is also an editor at the Quarterly Journal of Economics, which is one of the top academic journals in the field of economics. And that's part of how he knows so many things by having looked at so many papers uh, in the field. And as far as sectoral programs, which is what we're going to talk about today, training programs. So these are sectoral training programs. They are programs that train people for jobs in specific sectors, such as IT, that tend to be sectors uh, that have high employment growth and that are relatively high wages. And so that's you know, going to be the type of programs that we'll be discussing today. Fantastic. And it sounds like we have a real authority with Larry. You know, one of the things that um, I know excited us and our students was just how fantastic the evidence of impact is um, in, in the study that Larry did. Um, they showed a great return on investment. And especially given the Center for High Impact Philanthropy's work, um, they also demonstrate how critical the role of the nonprofit and philanthropic sector is in developing solutions to social issues like the one that we're going to learn more about, which is how can we attach more people to high wage earning jobs that persists beyond just a year or two. Right. So that's that's critical is that not only we want to help people find a job, but find a good job and a job that they're going to be able to keep or if they don't keep that particular job, be able to reach other similarly high paying jobs. And so, you know, that's the idea that this effect of these programs are going to stick. So let's listen in to my conversation with Larry to learn more about sectoral training programs. Great. All right, today I'm really happy to have Larry Katz on the show. So Larry is an economics professor at Harvard University, and he's an expert on all things about the labor market. Um, you can also follow him now on Twitter at LKATS42. Um, and today specifically we want to focus on Larry's recent work about the ways in which job training can help less educated workers get better jobs. And we'll be discussing the results today. So Larry, welcome to the show. Uh, welcome. Very nice to talk with you, Joanna. I'm great, glad to be here. Awesome. So, uh, 
you know, let's jump right in. So, you know, the in recent years, if you look at uh, the history of the U.S., uh, if you look at lower wage workers, we've seen wage stagnation from the bottom 50% of the income uh, distribution. And so these low wage workers, especially those with high school education or less, uh, you know, they haven't seen much wage growth. So why is that? So, as you noted, since the 1970s, you know, there's been a large growth of wage inequality in the U.S. and a growing education divide between those with college degrees and those without. And the way I like to think of it is there's three factors. There's sort of the supply of labor and the demand for labor that play out the way a market does, but there are also a lot of institutions like unions and minimum wages. And what's happened is that the sort of pathways to high wage jobs for less educated workers have become much more narrow in the U.S. because of automation, um, international trade. So a lot of jobs in manufacturing production work, a lot of middle management, supervisor clericals um, have sort of disappeared. Um, but demand's been very strong for data scientists and you know people with a lot of technical skills and communication skills. And demand's continued in a lot of in-person services up to the sort of pandemic. So when you put it together, and we haven't provided as much, you know, pathways to higher education for a lot of people from less advantaged communities. So when you put it together, the high wage jobs have disappeared. Many non-college workers end up working in lower paid in-person services. And the institutions such as the minimum wage and unions that used to support high wages in those institutions have eroded. And even when you work for a higher wage firm, in many cases, in non-college jobs, it's often outsourced to a contractor, independent contracting, so you're not getting access to the same benefits and high wages in the past. And from the late 70s to about four years ago, that meant, if anything, declining real wages. Uh, the very tight labor market of the last few years, 2019 and this year, has Done, you know, has started raising wages at the low end of the labor market, but not much to make up for 40 years of stagnation. Right. So, you know, if we narrow in and zoom in into some particular individuals and their experience trying to find a high wage job when you're less educated workers, what are some of the problems that these people might encounter in the labor market? You know, a lot of problems is employers use higher education and certain certifications as screens, and there's a lot of implicit bias, particularly against workers of color and with non-traditional sort of backgrounds. And in on top of that, even when there's access to jobs, often they are sort of outsourced and don't have, you know, a real pathway, and there's not as much training opportunity within firms as there was uh, for, say, someone leaving high school um, several decades ago. Right. We should definitely come back to that. Uh, now, let's dive in into the training. So, you know, I just mentioned that training is one of the ways through which these workers can access higher paying jobs. Uh, also, once you've got a job with training, potentially you can access higher you know, rungs of the career ladder. So that seems it seems like training could be a solution here. And in your research specifically, you looked at sectoral training programs, which is one particular type of job training. So can you briefly talk about what these sectoral training programs are and what's unique about them compared to other types of training or education? 
Right. So we have, there are obviously lots of training and education programs. We have a huge formal education system and community colleges that do a lot of the sort of training and general skills. And there have been a lot of public sector programs um, that, you know, have had a mixed record of success. So when I was in the labor department in the 90s, along with Alan Kruger, um, and some of our students, we did a review of all the sort of training programs and found a very discouraging set of patterns that many of them had short run effects, but they basically got workers into the types of jobs they would have gotten anyways in a few months. And they didn't seem to open the doors to getting into higher wage employment. And we sort of noted that a few programs that mixed sort of an intermediary that sort of vouched for people with training that seemed to be broader than a single firm seemed to have some promise. And this sort of observation, you know, I think was being made by a lot of people working in nonprofits and philanthropies and state and local government. And a movement started, you know, in the 90s and the 2000s to try to have more comprehensive employment and training programs that have become to be known by the name of sectoral employment training programs. And what they do is they sort of, they try to be very market savvy. They think about a sector, you know, think about IT, you know, help work, think about certain health technicians, think about mechanics for certain jobs, where there are jobs that have pretty good starting wages today, that also, if you look at people with more experience, have pathways to higher wages, and where a single employer may not be willing to invest a lot in a worker because those skills are transferable among a bunch of employers, so they could get poached if they pay for the training, and workers themselves don't have the resources or the knowledge to figure out exactly where these opportunities are. And so they combine being very market-oriented with designing training programs at a sectoral level that get you some certification that will be valued by a bunch of firms where their jobs today, but pathways. And they also play an important role of sort of what we sometimes call career readiness or soft skills training, communication, teamwork. And on top of that, they do a lot of job development. They try to work with a group of employers. Um, they vouch for people and they post placement, you know, help provide communication, ongoing services, whether it's work with setting up childcare, issues with dealing with supervisors and discrimination. And so this combination of being market oriented, combining, you know, training where there's an upward trajectory, both of occupational skills and the sort of softer skills and uh, working with employers. So they work both with workers and with employers um, seems to be the sort of special sauce that's worked in training programs that we've evaluated. Right. So, you know, these training programs, as opposed to, let's say, you know, just getting a degree in a community college are much more directly labor market applicable. And they come with all these services and help of interfacing workers to actually get them into a job. And, you know, I think that's what you mean by being market oriented. It's both responding to a demand from employers and really kind of a bit holding hands of the workers to help them through the whole process of, of getting into a job. Yeah. So the terms they often use are wraparound services, which is right. you know, trying to both on the employer and the, you know, trainee and worker side provide a wide range of services and to sort of be a true intermediary that, you know, 
make sure employers are comfortable hiring workers and that they're not going to abandon them. There'll be a communication channel after the job starts. And so it goes beyond just the classroom training and skills, and it's much more comprehensive. And that's what we noticed in the 90s were the characteristics of programs that seem to have longer-term earnings impacts. And then over in the last 15 years, we've had a bunch of I would say gold standard randomized control trial evaluations of these types of programs where we've seen more success than in any types of training programs. You know, these are some of them are three months, some are six months, a year, and with returns that look more like a couple years of college or even a undergraduate degree. Right. So, you know, I really want to pick up on what you just said here, because you said, you know, you were at the Department of Labor and you noticed that some of these programs that seemed very successful had these characteristics. And, you know, I just want us to notice that that doesn't necessarily mean that those characteristics were causing the good outcomes that we've seen. It's it's promising, but what we want to do once you notice something like that you see a program and you see that the people who take this program seem to do well, you're like, wow, that's promising, but is it really the program, right? Because one of the things they might be doing is selecting people, like you pointed out before, who might have done well anyway. So they bring them in and it looks very good for the program, but maybe the program, you know, isn't doing anything. And so that's where it comes in that the, the, the programs that you're looking at in this paper that we're talking about today were all, right, like randomized control trials so that we can better evaluate the effects. So can you walk us a yeah. little bit through why it's important to not just look at the program and say, oh, yeah. wow, alums are doing great and do an experiment. So a big problem and thinking of programs, lots of programs have what, you know, not intentionally, but effectively do a lot of what we call cream skimming. People jump through a bunch of hoops, they get in, they do a before after. There's sort of two problems. One is you enter this program because currently you might be in the short term doing poorly, you're out of work, you want to do something, but even without the program, the you know, you were gonna find another job and do better. Is this why I'm saying a lot of programs look like they just get people into jobs they would have gotten anyways. And The other is, you know, the types of people who do this may just be more committed. And so a lot of organizations will say, wow, people who completed our program, you know, ended up have $20,000 earnings jumps. But without a comparison group, maybe that would have happened anyways. Maybe that's even worse if they hadn't been diverted by your program, they would have gotten a better job. So what a randomized control trial does is it the ethics of it is many of these programs are oversubscribed. There are more people who want to do the program than they have resources. So one way we can try to both fairly ration the slots and learn about the impact is to essentially run a lottery among the people who are eligible for who gets these scarce services. And then we have a natural comparison group, the people who are exactly similar to the people who went in the program, they signed up for it, they would have gotten into it, but we had to ration the slots and can't go in. And so we can compare the people who get access to the program randomly, and the people just like them who don't. And that's what we've done in about, you know, nine different cases for sectoral employment programs. And we, and because of the ability today to link to administrative data, such as tax data, um, social security earnings, or unemployment insurance, we can passively follow the people who got the program and those randomized out over a number of years. And what we found is in the sort of 
say six months, the program lasts for a program like Europe, a very good one that started here in Boston for young people, you see the normal thing. They're accumulating human capital. They're in training, so they have a little bit lower earnings in the treatment group than the control group because they're getting more training than the control group. So let me pause here just so we, we all understand. What you're saying right, is that because they are in training, instead of being out there working, they're just not making as much money, yeah. right? Because they're taking classes, so they can't devote all of their waking hours to being in a job, right? Yeah. So there's they're invest. We think of this as investing in you know human capital or training. So you see a short run earnings loss. It's not tremendous because a lot of people in the control group have unstable jobs, so they don't earn that much. The once the program the training ends, you see a huge jump in earnings in the treatment group you know, ranging in a program like Europe, like 40 to 50% relative wow. to the sort of control group in a Persco loss, which is a tech one, more 35, some of them in the 20s. So that's larger than the initial jumps we've seen in traditional training programs. And then the amazing thing is we've, you know, in some of these programs, Project Quest, which is a program with health um, technicians in nursing, um, largely with Hispanic women in South Texas and in San Antonio, um, We've, we've now tracked that for 11 years, and wow. these earnings increases persist. They don't continue growing after two or three years, but Project Quest, they're still 18, 20%, 11 years out. In year up, they're 40%, five to six years out. In Periscalos, they remain 30%, five years out. And what we see is that it's, you know, they're getting workers into much higher wage employers and occupations and into jobs where there's growth so that these things don't erode away over time. It seems these programs seem to break down barriers that are very difficult to do through traditional training programs and without an intermediary to help you get into these types of jobs. And it's particularly important, say, for women of color facing childcare and other issues where the support services are very important as well, the training, and in areas where there's been a lot of discrimination on race, social class, and types of background you have. Exactly. So actually, you know, this, it's really impressive, you know, 30 40% increase in earnings I mean, I don't know of an intervention I can think of that is quite having these huge effects. So do you, are there other things like that that are quite so big? This seems astounding. I mean, you know, getting a college degree today yeah. from a good university, that's a four-year, you know, for a, for a one-year one year investment, we don't have a whole lot. Right, you know, right. I mean, there are things. Getting, you know, early childhood education has very high long-run returns that we have seen. On the margin, you know, there's sort of, wonderful work on the margin people just getting into a state university like Florida International University get a return but for a one one year program these are some of the highest you know return right so i just want to make sure we understand that this is quite high like it's it's quite amazing what these programs are, are able to accomplish and especially given the population here and i want to yeah. To maybe tell tell me more about who the people are. You mentioned racial discrimination. You mentioned barriers yeah. to employment for women. So tell me more about the commonalities between the people who are involved in this program. So in the nine you know programs that we evaluated and looked at, I'd say in typically mainly in urban areas, although some in sort of rural areas and large cities, the majority of the participants are uh, black. Uh, 
and Hispanic. There is a fair amount of gender segregation depending on the focus of the program. So programs focused on health are vast majority women. Those focused on tech are vast majority men. Although a number of the programs really do try to reach out. One I'm working with, Pursuit, really tries to make a 50-50 gender split working on sort of um, tech. And the programs vary. So most people um, have a high school degree or a GED. And typically, you know, there is some basic literacy and math screening for these programs, but you know, we're talking about eighth or ninth grade level, you know, not having a math undergraduate degree or something <laughs> to start sort of coding. And some of the programs like Year Up focus on opportunity youth young adults 18 to 24, programs like Project Quest, you know, it's 30 people in their 30s and their 40s, often women moving back into health. Um, a lot of these people have small amounts of college, you know, they've done a little bit of community college, they've been in and out of work, uh, um, been displaced. Um, in programs that are longer term, like Project Quest, with older workers, they tend to mix staying in work with these education programs. In some of the younger programs, like Year Up or Periscolos, they tend to be full time in the program while they're doing it. And the biggest returns are from people who were out of work at the time they apply. Right, but exactly. So most people, though, across the programs we've been looking at, were out of work, right? The vast majority at the moment that they apply. Yeah. Although, you know, some of the, you know, ones like Project Quest, the majority were, were working in low-wage jobs and continue doing that um, as part of it. And some of them, like Year Up, has a lot of, you know, stipends, and this is, they're well-supported by philanthropy. And then the second half of the program is an internship where you're paid at a firm. They try to, if they're working in tech, get a bunch of different, you know, help positions so that they do a combined. And others... Um, there's also been a growing movement towards essentially loaning the money up front uh, to the program and to the participants, right, a stipend, and then having what's known as an income share approach in which you only have to pay back the loan in small installments if you earn well above you know, what you'd get on the outside. So it, typically right. 40000 or 50, only once you start earning over 40000 do you pay back, and the payback is sort of limited. So that's you know, a, an organization known as Social Finance, um, which runs these types of things, has set up a career impact bond program to try to grow these programs with that sort of support from investors and philanthropists. And in fact, just last week, Google org announced a hundred million dollar program working with organizations like Year Up um, to try to expand these sort of sectoral employment programs and to provide the funding up front for people on these income share. Right. So you know, when I discuss we discuss your paper with my students, one of the things they're really concerned about and thinking about this disadvantaged population is what are they going to do while they're in training and they have no income. No, they were really concerned about how these people were going to make ends meet during the training. So it's good to know that you know they do receive in some programs some stipend of some sort. And actually, I wonder, do you think that not providing a stipend would be a major obstacle here? Because we know in higher education, cost is an obstacle, but maybe not the greatest. I wonder, however, if for these programs... Yeah. Well, so an, an open question is whether Pell Grants, you know, for shorter programs of these type that certification, some of them are jointly run with community co 
different colleges and could be like Project Quest runs things through community colleges. So people are eligible for Pell Grants. But it is an open policy question of there's a case to be made for these shorter term, you know, non-standard degree programs for Pell Grants. But there's a huge problem that occurred when we expanded Pell Grants in the 2000s, that there are a bunch of really shady for-profit colleges and providers who, you know, will sign up people (laughs) to receive their grants and their student loans. And relative to these programs, we have huge evidence of large debt burdens on top of the sort of Pell Grants and very poor performance. So, um, you know, there's a very big issue of how do you sort of monitor the quality of these programs and make sure and make sure they have some skin in the game in some sense, get the incentives right. Because when we expanded Pell Grants and student loans to a lot of for-profits, uh, online education in the 2000s, you know, it was a disaster. It was something like 13% of undergraduates in 2008, 9, and 10 were in these sort of for-profits, but they ended up being 25% of the Pell Grants and 40, per, 40 to 50% of all defaults on student loans, to give you an example. So the sort of having a organization like social finance or, you know, a Google that tries to monitor them, can we make sure that the Department of Education or the Labor Department, we, in the Obama administration, they tried to set up rules known as the gainful employment rules that the Trump administration then got rid of to try to say you had to have a record of support of earnings gains that were sufficiently high. Um, So I pushed organizations to look at where you actually have evidence that a program's working from the randomized trials or a good quasi-experimental evaluation, um, as those are the ones to invest in. Because the worry of opening up the spigots is that a lot of people are going to be taken by low-quality programs. Yeah, that's economics, right? The incentive, in this case, is the, we have to make sure that the incentives work right to get the objective of getting high-quality programs. And if you just incentivize private sector for-profit actors to provide those without any quality control, that's part of what has happened, you know, in the for-profit sector. Actually, this is a perfect segue to ask about these training programs. How should they be provided? We've talked earlier on today about, uh, you know, why don't companies provide those, right? Why does the government or nonprofits need to step in? What about the government doing it, nonprofits? Like, what, what are some of the combinations that work or don't and why? Yeah, so companies, you know, will provide training when it's in their interests for highly specific things that aren't as transferable to other firms because they worry that if they invest in a lot of training in a worker and then all of a sudden the outside market can just grab that person and didn't pay for the training. So this is what's known as the poaching problem. And this is particularly important in labor markets where, you know, there isn't a, a ton of competition with lots of firms competing, you know, for workers as much to sort of um, offer them good opportunities at training and where the worry is you have a small number of employers and if employer A trains you and then employer B poaches you, employer B then has a little power over the worker and they'll grab some of the return from both employer A and the worker. So neither of them have that strong an incentive to invest in it. Whereas an intermediary could work with both A and B and say, 
you know, we will help train a group of workers and then you can sort of compete with them or for a whole sector. There are some places where the for-profits work well in very clear programs of training, say, for health technicians where there's a clear state standard. And if you don't, you know, if people don't make it, there's an, a license that's very clear and what, you know, whether you're doing successful, they have been pretty good at short-term programs and you can measure success. And some state governments have very good training programs and capacity. Some are very weak. And in some cases, it's a joint it's joint between community colleges and a community organization, as in Project Quest works with community colleges in Texas. Europe has been expanding with a lot of community colleges throughout the U.S. Um, so, it, you know, th there's a mix. And then different U.S. is a large heterogeneous place. And there are very good vocational training, career and technical education programs in a lot of states. Kentucky runs very good ones that mix high school and, um, you know, community colleges. And in other states, it's really the nonprofit sector that has been more valuable at doing this. Right. So, I mean, it's quite interesting because these training programs, you know, we haven't talked here about it, but, you know, the cost benefit is favorable, meaning that the benefits that the workers get exceed the cost of the program. So it's quite a bit of a win-win because the program, you know, there's some cost, the workers win, but, but this doesn't necessarily um, take into account the benefits to employers who, again, we just talked about why they might not be incentivized to provide the training themselves, but now they're getting more productive workers, uh, you know, and potentially not paying them fully yet. So everybody's gaining some of this pie. The workers probably are gaining something. The employers are, are, are gaining something. So, you know, it's something that potentially, if executed correctly, seems to have a lot of promise. Yeah. And uh, in principle, taxpayers also, if they help fund this, are gaining from the higher earnings and lower um, sort of social support payments, the workers. So one analysis that we've done, if you just look at if, you know, again, we can't fully do this yet. We have sort of 11 years out. If you assume the gains that have lasted for 11 years lasted throughout the lifetime of sort of a worker, and you work at the sort of value of the increased tax payments and lower social funds relative to the program cost, it actually, you know, if the public sector funded such a program, taxpayers would end up getting a larger present value, you know, of tax of higher tax receipts back relative to the cost of the program. If we look at the returns from programs like Year Up, Perisco Loss, and Project Quest, other traditional training programs, you know, that ratio has not always looked so great. Programs like the Job Corps, which is one of the better ones, are right on the margin of sort of paying back. But these so far. Look, even the five-year returns in year up and um, Perskalas are already well above the cost of the program. And just to clarify here, when we talk about the taxpayer's perspective, the idea is we're going to invest in this program with our tax dollars. Then these people are making higher wages. But guess what? As they're making higher wages, they're paying more taxes. And those taxes right, that they pay extra can serve to cover the cost of the program. If it's a very good program, you know, it's, it, the benefits are such that, you know, it's completely worth doing it. It's a form of investment yeah. that we're making as a society in those people that pays back to society through the higher tax uh, that they're paying. Yeah, there's there's one subtle aspect of these evaluations, which are potential spillover effects. If we 
get, place a worker in a better job, but they knock someone out, the individual result. But these programs are, are actually about as well set up as you can imagine not to have that be a problem because they're targeting places that are sort of growing. And they're helping people increase a cadre of workers of the type who would never be trained for these types of programs. And so what we know from work, you know, there's a way of doing a randomized control trial more difficult where you look, you randomize across different labor markets at the fraction of people who get trained, then you can look at the whole market level outcome and some work that has been done actually in France, the best work on this by Esther Duflo, Bruno Crepon, Roland Rathalat, co-author has shown that when labor markets are really weak, a lot of unemployment in a sector or local labor market, it's a lot of musical chairs. If you train people, you just displace others. But when, when you're in a growing market, you allow firms to expand more quickly than they would have done otherwise, and you don't have these sort of displacement effects. And one of the nice aspects of sectoral employment training programs is they really target those types of settings right. where we think displacement. And the other thing is that they may actually have positive spillovers by changing employer policies where they've traditionally discriminated against groups of workers who would actually be very good workers for their positions. They could increase what we call in economics, the sort of efficiency of allocation of workers. If we weren't hiring women in some jobs, even though they were really good, or certain minority groups, and this sort of program convinces you to look at a broader pool, you might end up you know, having gains economically from sending people more towards where they're more productive. Right. That's that's definitely really interesting because when you think as employers, obviously, there's only so much risk they want to take. And they look at somebody who maybe doesn't look very good to them and they're like, eh, pass on this one. But if they have experience with people like that and have seen that they can be really good, that expands the pool and, you know, can be a benefit to workers who didn't take the program, but now are potentially being considered. Yeah. And another important group where these programs and the vouching are quite important are for people who have been criminally justice involved, who may you know, be on a very good path, but have a very tough time breaking into jobs with career possibilities. And so the intermediaries play an important role in creating a comfort with employers to take chances on workers they would have screened out because of a potential criminal record, even though they're well qualified for a job. So we've seen that these sectoral training programs have, you know, really very positive effects, increasing workers' earnings by about 30%. Uh, and, you know, so that's pretty amazing for these less educated workers. But besides these training programs, what else can we do for these uh, workers who have suffered wage stagnation? And where, you know, what are the most effective interventions? Is training the most effective things? How would you compare that, you know, in the broader panoply of tools that we have? I mean, I think... Training is and education is an important, but it's not a panacea by itself. As you move more people into higher wage jobs, you get some supply pressure raising wages in the lower wage jobs, but that's still a pretty weak mechanism. So you need a lot more clout for workers, uh, a stronger minimum wage. We have a lot of evidence has played a very big role in some of the gains in the labor market the last couple of years, um, you know, last 
five years, both voluntary minimum wages by some companies like Walmart and you know um, Amazon, as well as you know state and local ones. Um, strengthening the ability of workers to organize um, is clearly a hugely. We we've seen some strengthening, although more is taking place with sort of young college workers than with non-college workers these days. It's still very tough, as we see trying at places like Amazon and others um, to get organized. So making a, you know, reforming our labor laws and I think pushing towards things, you know, that sort of a, a big part of the growth of inequality has been the increasing segregation of workers, um, non-elite, non-college workers from high-wage firms through outsourcing to lower-wage providers. So things that look like what you know, I actually implemented here at Harvard called a wage and benefit parity policy, where you guarantee to pay the contractors the sort of inside wage and benefits so that you can contract out um, to sort of improve service quality, but not to undercut labor standards, trying to put pressure. You know, we do some of this for government contracts through service and construction pay parity laws. But I think this is off sometimes called sectoral bargaining, um, where all workers who work in a sector get a sector specific minimum wage and set of benefits. But I think those are potential. And a lot of European countries, which haven't seen as much erosion, have much stronger institutions um, of those types. Australia is another place with a strong sort of sectoral bargaining. So I think. You want to, you know, improve the supply of labor who have access to higher wage jobs, but you want to increase the cloud of all workers. And, you know, I think there are big payoffs to giving workers, you know, a bigger say. A lot of productive things don't happen when workers are in fear, whether it's a workplace like Amazon. And I think this is a case where the private profit incentive doesn't always show up with the productivity benefits and the broader social benefits of a stronger workplace. And we have seen tremendous erosion of those institutions in the U.S. You know, there's some glimmers of the, of the past few years of worker activism, state efforts, but still a long way to go. And that needs to complement training and education programs. So am I hearing it correctly that you think at the margin increasing worker power is likely to benefit the economy despite some potential costs for employers? Yes, that, that would certainly be my uh, assessment. There is a limit, but we're, way, we're, we're clearly on the part of the curve where it's <laughs> improvements. Yeah, we're way too low in worker power is my sense in the United States today. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like the mid-20th century economy was a disaster with stronger you know, unions in the U.S. We had our highest productivity growth and most egalitarian distribution then. Right. Well, I think this is a wonderful uh, place to, you know, close this discussion. Thank you so much again for being on the show, Larry. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Joanna. It was my, my pleasure. Joanna, that was a great interview, and, and I was really struck by two things. Um, the first is something I mentioned in the opening, which is how central the role the non of the nonprofit and philanthropic sector has been in developing these kinds of solutions. You know, the programs that Larry studied, like Year Up and Perscolas, um, those were implemented by nonprofits, and they're actually both programs that are pretty well known to the CHIP team. And when he mentioned the ways in which these promising programs got scaled up. He mentioned an organization called Social Finance, which is a group that, that helps scale 
uh, good solutions to social issues, relying on, in part, philanthropic funding alongside other types of funding. All right, so that's your first takeaway. So what was uh, the yeah, second thing? I did say two things, right? Well, I guess the second thing and the most exciting thing is what we talked about also in the opening, which is just how effective these sectoral training programs are. Right. I mean, this is really astounding in the sense that these training programs give workers a boost of 20 to 40 percent of their wages. So that's like a really huge increase wow. that, you know, these are very short programs of less than a year. And this is the amount that you can hope for from a four year college degree. So it's really incredibly um, uh, beneficial for these workers in ways that are quite difficult to achieve in any other way. And I think it really underscores the inventivity, the innovation that the nonprofit mm -hmm. world is demonstrating by having set up all these different types of programs uh, and making them into such a success. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. In addition to um, all the rigorous um, research evidence, which you and Larry discuss, you know, one of the things we think about at the Center for High Impact Philanthropy is um, the perspective of those who are most directly affected. So in this case, um, the participants, the program participants and, and sort of their perspective on how valuable these programs are. And I just want to read two quotes from one of the programs Larry um, studied per Scolis, um, one of them is, quote, um, as a single parent, I wasn't making enough money to afford to go to a coding boot camp. I graduated debt free and could be an example to my daughter, end quote. That's from somebody who participated and graduated from per Scolis. And another perspective from a program participant, quote, now I am an earning member of my family, end quote. Right. I mean, so this is clearly has impacted people's lives. But I do want to say that training can't be the only solution, as we discussed with Larry. And yeah. there are other policies that must come in to complement that. So things like the minimum wage, which directly increases the wages of low earners and also potentially organizing with unions. And here recently we've been for, uh, seeing, for example, the rise of unions at places like Amazon that just mm. recently had a union succeeding uh, in getting um, through in one of the Amazon um, warehouses. And right, so, right. you know, it's really important to think of how can we help low wage workers as a multi-pronged approach and that's why uh, you know with a co-author jake rosenthal we have a whole uh, review of the literature on worker power more broadly that it's about to come out so watch out for that well um your comments joanna are a really important reminder that really impressive as these program results are there's no one program that can be a you know a silver bullet to addressing all the disparities and access to good jobs. Um, but, you know, one of the things that also struck me, uh, so I guess it's three things that, that struck me, is that these sectoral training programs seem to be a really compelling win-win. Because on the one hand, you have these hard-to-employ people who now have better-paying jobs. And then on the other hand, you also have companies, particularly right now, um, that are finding it hard to fill jobs. And these programs actually, because of who they, they engage, result in a bigger and more diverse pool of candidates from which companies looking for great workers can draw from. So that, that 
that win-win on both fronts for the workers and potentially also for employers who are looking to to fill right. jobs. Um, and you know, it, it's one of the things Larry talked about was how the, this is particularly important for people who have historically um, not been employed or underemployed or, or just hard to employ where companies aren't looking um, for them as, as um, viable candidates. And it reminds me of, you know, some of the organizations that CHIP has looked at, looked at nonprofits like, you know, found in translation that trained bilingual women, mostly immigrants to serve as medical translators. And there was a similar win-win there where the women earned more pay after they were trained because medical translators uh, paid more than the jobs they had. And particularly during COVID were in very high demand. And because those skills were in such high demand, people in their community had access to better health care. Because if you don't understand what's right. being said to you by a nurse or a doctor, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to get the kind of care you need from you know, service providers. So um, again, another win-win. And, and Larry particularly talked about a group of people who are um, can be especially hard to employ. And he reminded us that these great training programs, it's not just the technical skills like IT, but um, equipping people who maybe have never had a job with you know, what people sometimes refer to as the soft skills. So again, I was, I was reminded of the perspective of, of a participant in a program that Chip looked at. This one was a program that um, connected people um, who had recently, um, uh, been incarcerated. So a, a group that Larry specifically pointed right. out can be hard to employ. And um, here's a quote from somebody who participated in a similar program, quote, the easy step for anybody who's coming out of jail would be to revert back to what they were doing, because this is one thing that they know how to do the best. The fear of not knowing and messing up. That's what stops you from moving on. I didn't know what to say in an interview, how to act, basically because I hadn't had a real job before, end quote. Right. So, you know, the it, it's critical here that this program not only gives people technical skills, but also this, what Larry called this wraparound services, you know, mm. to help them along, to get their foot in the door with the employer, to support them in their relationship with the employer after it has started. And so that's going to be key uh, to the success of programs like this. And, you know, just to uh, remind everybody that you can follow Larry Katz on Twitter at LKatz42. And, you know, the paper we've been looking at here is, um, we're going to put the link in the show notes, um, and it's looking again at sectoral training, and it's an article that's co-authored with Jonathan Roth, Richard Hendra, and Kelsey Scharberg. And this paper is forthcoming in the Journal of Labor Economics as a special issue in honor of Alan Kruger, whom we talked about during the episode. Fantastic. And if any of our listeners are interested in guidance on how to identify programs to support what Larry referred to as opportunity youth. So these are young people ages 16 to 24 who are not connected to school or work. And so they're at high risk of finding no jobs or finding only very low wage jobs. If you want to find out great programs and how to identify great nonprofits doing the kind of work Larry describes, um, you can uh, visit CHIP's website and get a free downloadable guide um, at impact.upenn.edu toolkit, Opportunity Youth Toolkit. And that'll be in the show notes too. Terrific, uh, Kat. So this is what we had. Until next time, Kat. 
All right, looking forward to it, Joanna.